Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 6, 5 through 7, 16. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his, son, his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons 
with them entered the ark and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we got a long one today. Thank you for reading. That's a tough one. <clears throat> well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. It is really good to be with you today. I'm trusting that there's people on the balcony. I can't see you. It's pitch black right now. First service, it was like spotlights in here. And it was really weird. It felt like I was preaching in the middle of Walmart. So it's different now, but whatever. We're having all kinds of technical difficulties today. Um, over the past several weeks, I've been out of town. I got to preach at three different Acts 29 churches. Um, it was fun and a great opportunity to see what God is doing in our network across the Midwest. But there really is nothing like being home. I love preaching here. I love being uh, your pastor, and so it's a great joy of my life to serve you week in and week out. If you are just joining us, we are here in the second week of our Advent series that we're calling Post Tenebrae Lux. Uh, we get that word Advent from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. So at uh, the season of Advent is where we, the five weeks before Christmas, where we celebrate the first coming or the first arrival of Jesus Christ, but we also expectantly look forward to Christ's second coming, Christ's second Advent. I hope that you are already celebrating Advent well with your family at home. I hope you're using an Advent devotional with your kids. I hope you're playing Christmas hymns. I hope you've decorated your homes. I hope that you've lit up the neighborhood with an obnoxious amount of Christmas lights. Why? Because God has become man and he came to save us from our sins. And that God-man has promised to come once again to renew and to restore this broken cosmos, to get it back into right relationship with its creator, to wipe the face, or to, to clean the face of this earth, get all the evil off the face of this earth. And that's great news worth singing about and worth lighting up your neighborhood over. Well, as I mentioned, this Advent series is also called Post Tenebrae Lux, which is another Latin phrase taken from the reformers that means after darkness, light. After darkness, light. That should probably be your next tattoo. It's a cool phrase. So as you read the scriptures, you're going to see this theme over and over and over and over. I saw somebody just elbow their wife going, I think it might be the one. <laughs> Post Tenebrae Lux, that might be the one, right? So this after darkness light is a theme. Think of it like this. God is an author. He's the first author. He's the original author. He's writing a story. And one of the themes that you see over and over and over in the story that he's writing is after darkness light. Last week, Pastor Rob looked at Genesis 1 and 3. Um, Genesis is the book of beginnings. And in the book of beginnings, you see this author, God, start clarifying some of his, his favorite themes and one of them being after darkness light. We saw in Genesis one and three that God literally in creation speaks into the darkness and he speaks light and light comes bursting forth. Then we see in the story of Adam and Eve, 
when, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they stepped in. Listen, listen to this. When you disobey God, sin is stepping away from the light, stepping away from the source of life and stepping into darkness. Moral, religious, existential darkness. That's exactly what they do. They, they disobey God and God said, if you disobey me, the, the consequence will be judgment. The consequence will be death. And so that death for them was a moral darkness. And in the midst of that dark situation though, God does something surprising. We, we expect him just to like annihilate them, kill them, get rid of them, right? Start over, go for version 2.0, right? But that's not what God does. God surprises them and he surprises us as readers of the story of God. God doesn't destroy them. God right away gives them grace. He kills animals. The grace isn't, grace isn't just like, oh, no big deal. Just try harder next time. No, no, no. There's judgment required. They broke the, the law of God. They pushed away the, from the Lord of light and life. And so there's judgment required, but that judgment falls on some animals actually first. That they feel this inner separation with themselves and with each other and with God. And they feel like all, they're naked and they're ashamed now. So what God does is he kills animals and he takes the skin of animals and he covers Adam and Eve's, uh, he covers their bodies, right? And then he does something weird. He speaks this cryptic words that we sang about already, talking about the, 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 the serpent, uh, the serpent, uh, in Adam, and, or the, the, and the serpent going to bruise the heel of Adam. And, and we sing about that in the, in the Christmas hymn this morning, that God says there's going to be enmity between Satan and Adam, that there's going to be some kind of issue that's going to go on through, through all the generations, that Adam's um, descendants are going to be at odds, going to be at war with the descendants of Satan. But one of those descendants that's going to come is going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent is going to bruise his heel. It's this weird, we call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first ever gospel presentation in the Bible. That, of course, was pointing forward to that future descendant of Adam, which was Jesus Christ. So in this moment of great darkness with Adam and Eve, we see God speak light into that situation. God literally brings light out of that situation. Psalm 108 verse three says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and listen, abounding in steadfast love. God is so merciful and so gracious and so slow to anger and so abounding in steadfast love that he replays this scenario over and over and over again in the scriptures and our own lives as well. God speaks life or life and light into the darkness of our lives and situations in society over and over and over again. Not only that, but God has built it into creation. Every single day, God says to the sun, do it again. And out of darkness comes the light. Now, we don't believe in the deistic idea of God, that God has wound up creation on its own and it's like a watch and it just keeps functioning all by itself. No, God is in, imminent in his creation. God is, we, Jesus says in Colossians 2 that he's holding all things together. Right? And so God brings life and light out of darkness still today. But this is what we're going to see. And this is what we see all through the story of God. When we push away from God, 
we're pushing away from light. How do we push away from God? When we deny his rights over us, we act like he's not there. When we say we're a God unto himself, we can create our own rules, create our own plan for life. We don't need God. We can do it all on our own. What naturally happens when we do that is we begin to worship some part of creation. That's called idolatry. And when that happens, we are not far from chaos and destruction. This morning, we're looking at Genesis 6 and 7. The story of Noah and the ark. The story takes place several thousand years after the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, we're gonna ask some questions of this text this morning. We're gonna say, hey, I wonder how things are going. How are things going on the face of the earth? And it's not surprising, we already read it. It's not going too well. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna ask the Spirit to help us. We're gonna jump in and study this text together. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, that we need you we need your word. Um, it doesn't go well for us when we try to do things on our own. I pray that you would convince us of that from your text, from your scripture this morning. I pray that you would help me, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me, that your people would hear your voice and they would choose life. They would choose light. They would choose you. Would you do this for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, my voice is a little rough this morning. Like I said, I've been preaching out of town, but yesterday I got, I, I got to speak to the Porterbrook students. I had about three hours of lecture and those lectures ended up sermons and I ended up preaching for about three hours yesterday. So we had a great time, but my voice is, uh, is struggling. All right. So I'm going to try to keep it as chill as I possibly can today. So I don't lose it completely. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter six and let's get in, let's start in verse five. All right, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter six, verse five. And here's what we see. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Scholar Derek Kidner says of this verse, a more emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart is hardly conceivable. Look at the words that Moses shows us here. Look at the words that God speaks here. Every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only, every, only, evil, continually, right? We see that God looks down and sees, and it is not going well. Mankind is not doing good. Keep reading, Verse six, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God here was grieved. God created out of his abundance of grace, out of his omnibenevolence. God was so happy in himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that like a, like a mother and father together, out of their love for each other, they create a child and they create a, create a family. God did something similar. God was so abundant in his own happiness, so satisfied in his own self, that he chose to spread that grace around and create the universe, create the world, create human beings. But that creation had chose to reject him, chose to push away from him, chose to look at the creator and go, no, nah, I don't need him. And now God, the creator, is looking into his family, looking into his people, and he sees only evil continually 
and it breaks his heart. He's grieved. He said, grieved him to his heart. Verse seven. So what's he going to do here? So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Woo, God decides to, to just wipe the, the slate clean and start over. What does that mean for us? That means these people were beyond rehabilitation. These people were beyond repentance. These people were totally evil in their heart, in their mind. And we might have a problem with that, but I'm, I'm sure if we went back to the ancient Aztecs and we watched the ancient Aztecs worship their God by killing, sacrificing thousands of human beings at a time, what would we say if we were looking into that situation? Right? We would say we need, judgment needs to happen. We need, somebody needs to come in here and clean house. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Even though this is probably, this is the darkest moment in human history up until this time, after creation, we need as Christians to have a redemptive reflex. When things get darker and darker and darker, we should be looking for the light. We should be looking for the hope because we know that our God isn't a God of darkness. He brings light out of darkness. And as we sin and as we push away from him, he is so committed to us and he's so committed to his own glory that he's going to give somebody grace and he's going to bring light out of darkness. And so that's exactly what we see here. Too many people are ignorant when it comes to the Bible and they believe that God somehow changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That God was like mean and vindictive in the Old Testament and he's a real soft, cuddly guy in the New Testament. They believe that there was no grace in the Old Testament. It was all law. But then God is all of a sudden gracious now in the New Testament. That, if you believe that, I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The only reason anyone has ever had any relationship with God is because God has been gracious from the get-go. He didn't kill Adam and Eve. He didn't kill you know, everyone else. He doesn't kill Noah. I mean, God has been gracious from the very beginning. So that's what we need to look for. Okay, whoa, it's getting really dark. It's like this. You guys know there's a theme of redemption. You look for it in nearly every movie. If the movie doesn't have a redeemer, it shocks you and there's something, it just ends in death. You're like, oh, no, that wasn't right. Why? Because our world has been created by a God who redeems. And so we should have an instinct that looks for the spark of light, that looks for the grace of God, that looks for the hero that's gonna make things right. And that's exactly what we find here in verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in the original Hebrew is hen, and it means grace. The Oxford English Dictionary defines that Hebrew word as, quote, God's unfair, preferential treatment. That's grace. Now, how is it unfair? It's unfair because human beings do not deserve grace. Human beings do not have a right to grace. If we deserved it, it would be more like a wage or a right. What we deserve 
is death and judgment because we've all sinned against a holy God. So we are all born from Adam's race and, all, and that, with that comes original sin passed down to us in our veins. But also we've chosen in some form or fashion to push away from God and to sin against him. And therefore, because he is holy and he is a creator and we have sinned against him, we deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. But God gives people grace. And he gave Noah here grace. We need to be clear on this right away. Listen, it says Noah was a righteous man. It says Noah was blameless in his generation. That does not mean Noah was sinless. Noah was not sinless. He was not morally perfect. No, here's what it says about him. Noah was a man who walked with God. What does that mean? Noah realized Looking at creation, there's a God and I'm not him. And I need something from outside of myself to direct my life and to help, help me. I am a sinner and I need grace. And so he looks to the creator, God. What that means is Noah did not live for himself. He put God first. He still sinned and still made bad decisions. We're not gonna talk about this today, but after the flood, Noah ends up drunk and naked, okay? I'm just gonna say that. Noah is not like our moral exemplar. Hey, everybody, go be just like Noah. Nope, Noah was just like us and that he sinned and make, made mistakes. But here's the deal. God looked at him and declared him blameless, declared him righteous because Noah put his faith in God. All right, that's what happens here. We see that in Hebrews 11, 7. So my first point, as we're getting in this this morning, because I want to make some correlations to our society today. Most of us feel the darkness closing in. Most of us feel our society, by and large, is pushing away from their creator, pushing away from their sustainer, pushing away from Jesus Christ, who's sitting in the throne room of God and holding all things together. And as you push away from God, you're pushing away from light and you're stepping into darkness. And when you get into darkness, chaos is the next thing that comes. And so that's where we're headed, just like Noah. So what do we need to be doing? Well, this is the first point I want us to see this morning. When God looks down and sees things are really dark, he looks for a man or a woman who's remaining faithful to him. He looks for a man or a woman who is resisting the darkness, who is walking faithfully with God, even though no one else is. God is still looking for such men and women who aren't willing to just jump in the river and go with the stream of culture, but are willing, no no matter how exhausting it is, to get in that river and to swim and to fight from going downstream, who are resisting the darkness and not just doing what everybody else does and thinking what everybody else thinks. God is still looking for people who will be faithful to him in the midst of an unfaithful society. So I pray that we would be more like Noah in our day today. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Corrupt. That's, think of uh, this idea of corruption. Think about a, a body who is dead and is now corrupting and decaying. It's disgusting. He's looking at the earth and it's corrupt. It's morally, morally corrupt. And the earth was filled with violence. See this 
These, these weren't just you know, good people trying to do the best thing they could. These are people who were pushed away from God, pushed away from any sense of morality and the right thing, and they were a violent society. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Here God is, this is interesting. He's echoing his actions from Genesis 1 and 2. Remember there, God spoke and then God saw that it was good. That was a pattern that he repeated multiple times over. Well, here we see that reversed. God sees the wickedness of man. God sees that the earth is corrupt and filled with violence. So God speaks to Noah and tells him, I'm draining the swamp. He tells him, I'm cleaning house. He's going to destroy the whole earth. He's going to destroy all of the wicked people on the earth. But in the midst of that judgment, God, by his grace, is going to offer Noah one way of salvation. Let's look at it. And God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, I'm not gonna go into all of the details that we already read this morning, but here's the gracious word that came from God. Judgment is coming. Listen to my words. Build an ark. The flood is on its way. Okay? That's what God spoke to Noah. Now, can we just sit back and think about this for a minute? God looks at the darkness of the society, speaks to one man, and this is what he says. Build a floating zoo. Make the first ever zoo boat in the middle of the desert. God said very specifically, I want said zoo boat to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high with three stories in there. That is 1.4 million cubic feet or big enough to hold 522 modern day railroad cars. Many scholars believe that this took Noah the better part of 120 years to build. Oh, but that's not good enough yet. Think about this. You're in the desert. Probably never seen a boat. God tells you, build a cruise ship right in your front yard. Not only that, you're not going to, 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 to Menards and ordering the zoo boat package. You gotta go find trees. He tells them specifically what kind of trees. Go for wood trees. You got to cut them down. You've got to mill the lumber, right? You got to go find tar and pitch to waterproof it with. This is a ton of work for a four-man crew or if, he, if he's, you know, good enough to, to convince the ladies to help maybe an eight-man crew, right? Can you imagine this? Noah and his sons, possibly daughter-in-laws, wake up for 120 years, they wake up, strap on the tool belts, and get to work. They're doing this, remind you, in the midst of a dark, corrupt, violent, 
and God-hating society. Can you imagine how Noah and his sons looked to the neighbors? You know the neighbors, right? Because as soon as the truck pulls up to the neighbors and somebody starts a construction job, you know, you're gonna walk out there to the neighbors and see what's going on. What are you building? Noah's like, Zubo. <laughs> what? Why are you building so far away from the house? What is this giant thing? Zubo, Zubo. <laughs> right? He had to look like an insane person. And we're not talking insane for a day or two, insane for a week or two. Insane for 120 years. Noah, expected any rain today? <laughs> Noah did get drunk and naked, so maybe they thought Noah was an alcoholic. Like, he's been on the sauce again. Noah thinks it's gonna rain. 120, day, 120 years every day we wake up. No clouds. Listen, if Noah would have been worried about the re what the rest of society thought of him, if he would have been worried about the Twitter mob, what, what somebody's gonna say about him on Facebook, Noah would have never finished the ark. You know what kept him going? Hebrews eleven seven says this. Noah built the ark, quote, in reverent fear of God. He was in awe of God. He believed God was holy. God was separate. God was distinct from his creation and we owed him everything and we had sinned against him and we deserved the wrath of God. Noah believed that, but God had given him grace and said, but I'm going to save you. There's a sliver of hope here. There's light in the darkness. If you listen to my word and if you obey me. He's like, He's just in awe at the grace of God in his own life. God spoke to me. God's giving me grace. God chose me. God walks with me. God speaks to me. And God is going to save me and my family. I choose to be crazy in the world's eyes. I care more about God's thoughts towards me than I do about the opinions of my neighbors or my coworkers or my friends. Second Peter 2.5 says that Noah was also a herald of righteousness, a herald, a preacher, a bringer of good news. So Noah, or so Noah was bivocational. He was working on the ark, but he was also telling people what God had said. Judgment's coming. The only way for you to be saved is to get in on this. Believe in God, trust in God, and help me build this boat. But this is where it gets real ugly. Noah works and preaches for 120 years and sees, as far as we know, zero converts. Gotta be, I mean, I planted this church and we only had like 15 people and we've been, we're 10 years in now and we've seen hundreds of converts and we're thankful. I don't know if I could do it for 10 years if I saw zero converts. Noah does it for 120 years. Nothing doing. Noah as far as we know, Noah had only received one word from God. Build an ark. Rain is coming. That word of God was light and life to him. It was a word of grace that required Noah's faith and obedience. But as far as we know, God didn't speak directly to Noah again for 120 years when God said, today's the day. Noah 
trusted in the dark what God spoke to him in the light. In other words, that one word of God, Noah treasured it. Noah held on to it. And that's what got him up every single day. All right, boys, put the, put the tool belts on. We got to go to work. In the sunshine, in the heat, without rain. We're going to work. What are you doing? I'm building a boat. The way of salvation looks foolish. The way of salvation looks crazy to the world. Noah trusted the word of God even when all of society was getting dark and everyone was making fun of him and nothing made sense. He was not led by his emotions or his senses. He walked by faith in the word of God. One of the things that the word of God does in our hearts is it fills us with the power to endure when normal men and women would quit and go home. It takes faith to be faithful. And faith comes from hearing God's word. God's word is what fuels our faith and sustains our obedience over the long haul. Look at verse 18. There's one more thing we really need to see here. One of the things that God says to him is this but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I will establish my covenant with you. One of the most important sentences in all of the Bible. This verse is an absolute game changer. It's the first time that the word covenant is used in the scripture, and covenant is one of the dominant themes of the entire Bible that you really can't even understand salvation and understand God and understand scripture until you get a working knowledge, a working understanding of this idea of covenant. Today, let me just say this. Covenant is God's decision to create a special, unfair relationship with certain people, okay? Everybody on the face of the earth is sinners. Nobody deserves grace, but God chooses to make a covenant with certain people, all right? Today, it's Noah and his family. This is a covenant of grace. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. You do this, I do that, okay? God is making a commitment to Noah. Listen, if you believe me, if you put your faith in me, if you obey me and build the ark, I will save you and your family. I promise to do that, right? That's a covenant. But what did it require of Noah? It required Noah's obedience. Noah couldn't just believe it. All right, thanks God. And then for 120 years, not build an ark. He would have died. His faith required obedience, right? I'm gonna believe and I'm gonna get to work. Right? And God promises to save his family. One thing that I want you to see here is that the first thing that God said to Noah was pretty, pretty dark. He says, I have determined to kill them all. God made Noah aware of his coming judgment first. And that made this covenant of grace that much sweeter. See, God's grace shines brightly against the backdrop of his judgment. This is one of the reasons that it is so important for us to understand and know that God is holy from us. He's other than, he's holy and righteous and he's a judge. He cannot do evil and he cannot allow his people to do evil. He cannot be in the presence of sin 
and, and he can't, if he let it go on without judging it, he would be unrighteous himself. See, the, the core message of the gospel, of salvation in the scriptures is this. Salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. You can literally see this everywhere. And if you are not critically aware of God's coming judgment, you will be neutral to the gospel. I'm actually a pretty good person. I don't really need that. If you don't really believe that God is totally righteous and holy in his judgments, then you don't really think you need to be saved from anything. I need a little bit of help. I mean, I'd like to be a little better, but I don't, you know, man, God's not mad at me or anything. There's no, no separation between us. There's no judgment hanging over my head. No. But Moses here in the book of Genesis is giving us this historical account as a picture of God's grace in the midst of his divine judgment. The flood is God's judgment on a sinful world. And in this story, there is only one way to be saved from that judgment. And that was God's grace and the ark. God's grace through the ark. Hear this. You had two options. God's grace or swim for it. The grace of God, do the best you can do. This, the choice is still the same today. Every other religion on the planet says swim for it. Let me teach you how to be a better swimmer. A little mindfulness, a little empathy, a little stoicism, work hard, do some good things, give, give away some money to the poor, do some good deeds. I'm gonna teach you how to be a better swimmer. Christianity says the grace of God. Same is true for us today. There is only one way to be saved from God's judgment and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at Genesis chapter seven, verses 11 through 16. In the 600th year of Noah's life. What? Yeah, later on, God says, uh, he limits mankind's life to 120 years. But before this, the patriarchs, they lived a long time. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep. And by the way, for, those pe for people who think, man, this just sounds like a myth. Myths don't have details like this. <laughs> all right, this is not a myth. This is a historical fact. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. Now listen, this is what's going on. Remember in the creation event that God, listen, only two worldviews exist in this world. Everything is one, everything is in creation, okay? Or everything is two. There's the transcendent God and they're his creation, okay? In the beginning was God, he creates, right? And then he, what does he do? He divides the waters above and the waters below. He divides night and day, light and dark. You see male and female. You see all of this division going on, right? Into twos. What's happening right now is people have pushed away from God. They've stepped into the darkness. And now we're about to have a reversal of creation. Chaos is about to cover the earth again. That's what happens in idolatry. Always. It leads to darkness and chaos. Verse 
So the fountains of the deep were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Many scholars believe this is the first time it's ever rained. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and their three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh. Can we just say, thank God that Noah could, you know, differentiate between binaries, male and female, right? It's kind of, kind of good, kind of important, right? Keep going. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. See, listen, if you believe in a secular humanistic worldview that all is one, all that exists is matter, all that exists is flesh, all that exists is what's in this creation, it's all one. You can do with it what you want. So you can merge male and female. You can try to do all kind of weird stuff with it because you believe it's all one. That's not what Christianity believes. That's not, what, that's not an accurate worldview. That's not right. There is God and there's creation. There's two. And that's why his creation reflects two over and over and over. Look at the last sentence of, 18, of 16. And the Lord shut him in. It's about to get heavy. Noah spent 120 years looking like a fool. And now the rain starts to drop. The time for repentance is past. I've got to think that Noah couldn't bring himself to shut the door, so God shut the door for him. He's watching the rain fall and he's hoping that there's still time for someone to respond in faith. God seals the deal. God closes the door. God closes the door on salvation. Noah and his family of eight are the only humans who are saved. And I'm gonna paint this picture for us and it's not going to be pretty, but I want us to feel it. Many of us have only read this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible or some kid's Bible that paints the picture kind of pathetic. If we think we can read this story to our kids and then put them to bed and they sleep at night, we're not reading it accurately. The door to the ark closes and the rain begins to fall. I see Noah rushing to a window to watch as God's promise unfolds. I see him getting his kids and going, 120 years, we, were, we look like morons. But look what's going on. I told you guys. I told you he spoke to me, <laughs> right? 120 years. Man, I really hope dad's not crazy. <laughs> and what's, Noah's pointing out the window saying, God is trustworthy. God is faithful. It doesn't matter how foolish it looks, son. We walk by faith, not by sight. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. I told you he was going to cleanse the earth. I told you he was going to fix what was made, what was wrong and what was broken. He was going to make it right. And then Noah probably looks out 
Maybe he sees children. Children playing in the rain, enjoying what might be the first ever rainfall on the earth. But the waters don't stop. They rise and they fall. The rain keeps coming. Eventually, people are going to start to get concerned. Panic is going to begin to set in. People are going to start rushing to get their things and get to higher ground. It was probably the sick and the elderly who drowned first, swept away by swollen creeks and rivers, the strong and healthy made for higher ground. Some probably chose to wait it out up in the, you know, or woke up in the middle of the night with waters rising into their houses, not knowing what to do. They do what so many people do in flash floods and they climb a tree or they get to the top of a hill or get to the top of their house and try to wait for the waters to abate and maybe a rescue to come. But the rain kept falling. Eventually, you have to believe that they would realize what's going on, especially the neighbors of Noah. Oh, no. Guys, get to the crazy man's house. You know, with the big thing in the front yard. Get there right now. And Noah, a herald of righteousness, sees his neighbors running. He hears their screams. He sees them pounding on the side of the boat. And there's nothing he can do. God has sealed him in. There comes a point where they just have to know this is the end. I am going to die. And as their houses collapse amidst the ferocity of the waves, they do what they can do. They swim for it. They try to cling to any floating scraps that they can get their hands on. They scream out. They maybe shake their fist at God and say, how could you do this to me? Not enough time. I only had 120 years. You didn't give me enough evidence. Come on. I don't deserve this. They pray for the rains to stop, but it keeps falling. God's judgment and his justice is fatal and final. This, God had literally given them 120 years to believe the gospel and to repent. And now that time was past. It's too late. As I was studying this text, I was praying and I started wondering, I wonder who he was. I wonder who the last man was to succumb to the rising waves. More than likely, it was a young buck who hightailed it to the mountains, thinking like he had done so many times before, his youth and vigor and strength and wisdom and know-how would save him just like it has in the past. He ain't like everybody else. But the waters eventually rose, even over the peaks of the mountains. There was no way out Noah was right. There were only two options. God's grace through faith in him 
or swim for it. See, when we push away from God and we want to live a life away from him, we're pushing ourselves out into the waters of chaos. God says, go for it. Swim for it. And that life maybe feels like freedom for a while. You can sleep with who you want to sleep with. You can create your own morals, create your own purpose in life. But eventually that comes to an end and then there is the judgment of God. You push away from God and you don't want anything to do with him. You're, push your way, you're pushing yourself away into hell. Because when the judgment comes, there's only life with God and life away from God. And this is heaven and this is hell. Option number one, God's grace through faith has a time cap on it. It's hard for me to imagine this. It's hard for me to put myself in Noah's shoes. He's in the boat as the rain beats down on the roof and people scream and pound on the door and beg to be allowed inside, but God had shut him in. Revelation 3.8 says Jesus opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open. Noah couldn't open it back up. And we need to be reminded that God said the wages of sin is death. I know this is dark. I know that's difficult to hear, but this is reality. This is truth. And thousands of people die every single day unaware of the consequences of their rebellion. You push away from God, you push away into chaos. You want a life away from God, he will give it to you, but in the end, it ends in death. Only those who receive the grace of God and walk with God are saved from God's judgment on sin and receive eternal life. God saves Noah and his family destroys everyone else and God starts over. Noah gets out of the boat just like a sailor. He's drunk and naked within 12 hours. Sinning again, starting the process all over again. God prompts, God gives a rainbow, promises I'll never do this again, flood the earth like this again. But it shows us that some, we need something more than that. We, we, need, we need more than a second chance. And so God does the unthinkable. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to come and be the true and better Noah. See, Noah walked with God, but he was unrighteous. You know, he was a, still a sinner. Jesus was God and walked with us, walked with man. So God put on flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus and then Jesus lived a perfect life, unlike Noah. And Jesus didn't get exaltation right now and kingship right, right now like he should have. Instead, Jesus takes our darkness on himself, our sin and rebellion on himself. And what does God do? God throws him outside the boat. 
The waves of death cover him. The waves of the wrath of God envelop Jesus and Jesus drowns under the wrath of God in our place. He took what we deserve. He died the death that we have earned through our sin. Jesus drowned so that we could have life. And then if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get salvation. See, Jesus isn't just the true and better Noah. He's also the true and better ark. He's the only place that we can find refuge from the storm of God's wrath. He's the only place we can be saved from our sins. There is only two options. The grace of God found in Jesus Christ and you found in him or swim for it. You know what? You guys are getting something extra. First service didn't get this. I know you didn't pay for it, but you still get it. You get it for free. Matthew 24. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Talking about the return of the Son of God, his second coming. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father only, or but the Father only. Listen. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now who got swept away? The sinners got swept away, right? When, Jesus, when, when, when the waters of judgment came. Let's keep reading. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, many people think those that are taken are like the Christians that get taken. I think that's a misinterpretation of this text. Keep reading. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. So if I, oh, Jesus isn't coming back. I can do what I want. And begins to beat his fellow servants and even, and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The one taken is the sinner and he's taken out. We're not getting zapped off this planet to go into the sweet by and by. Jesus is bringing the new heavens and the new earth here and he's coming with judgment. We see this in the book of Revelation. He's destroying evil. He's wiping out sin off the face of the earth. Right there it said, one is taken, one left. Later on it says, who's taken? 
The sinner is taken out, literally cut to pieces is what it says there in the story. Listen, that story of Noah is a microcosm of the ultimate story of all reality. Jesus Christ has came and he offers salvation in him. He is the ark of salvation. He is the only way to be saved, but he's coming again. That offer of salvation through the grace of God has an expiration date on it. The day he comes again, there's no second chances. Right now, you have the choice. Choose Jesus or swim for it. Father, I thank you for showing us this. I thank you for giving us this revelation. We wouldn't know it if you didn't. I thank you for being a God who's gracious, that you wake us up, that you speak light into our darkness, that you give us an offer of salvation. We don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to swim for it. We can choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ and to see that he was crucified for us to cleanse us of our sins. And when we put our faith in him, you give us the righteousness of Christ and we are accepted in the family of God. And we get meaning and purpose and value and life and light and eternal life with you. And we look forward to the day where you will come back and once again, you will rid this planet of sin and evil and violence and idolatry. And you will restore the kingdom to God the Father. And we will walk with you on this planet once again. And we will see you face to face and we will sing of your great love for us and the glory of God will be our delight. Give us faith in this moment to believe it. I pray people would go from death to life this morning, from darkness to light. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that you prepare for us a table in the presence of our enemies. In the midst of darkness, we get a table of light. And we come and we receive the elements. We receive the bread that represents the body of Christ and the cup that represents the blood of Christ. And we eat it expectantly waiting for your second return. Give us faith to do this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.